May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I suspect that most people who have spent any amount of time reading and studying the four Gospels will be able to identify the one that most speaks to them, the one Gospel they're most inclined to recommend to someone just beginning to explore the Bible. I almost always recommend Luke as an entry point because Luke's gospel is so very rich in story and parable. Personally, I find the gospel according to Mark to be the most compelling picture of Jesus, in part because the Jesus I see there seems so very human. He has struggles. He gets frustrated with the disciples. And he expresses those agonizing words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I find a strange kinship with Mark's portrait of Jesus because it tells me that my struggles and my frustrations are made acceptable in his sight. I'm not always so sure with the Christ that I find portrayed in the Gospel according to John. I mean, there are these extraordinary moments in that Gospel account where I'm utterly caught up when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, for instance, or when he identifies them and us as his friends. I'm struck by the playfulness of his conversation with the Samaritan woman by the well, the no-nonsense conviction with which he engages the Pharisee Nicodemus and the confidence he has as he stands before Pilate. And yet, there's a way in which so much of John's account makes it seem as if Jesus was so completely aware of his oneness with God that he never once really had to ask a hard question or even to pray with any depth of search or discernment. He's shown praying several times, but it's always followed by a kind of a qualifier, as in the case of his prayer at the tomb of Lazarus, where John tells us, Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe you sent me. I'm praying, but I'm praying to teach something. Similarly, in today's reading of John's Passion account, we read that when Jesus knew that it was all finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. In order to fulfill the scripture which pictures Jesus as being so very, very much in control of things, of all things, in fact. Now, as John presents the crucifixion, Jesus makes two other statements. And in both, he strikes me as being almost impossibly composed. The one is a stunningly poignant and warm moment when he looks down from the cross to see his mother standing beside the disciple John. And he commends them into one another's care. Woman, 
here is your son. And then to the disciple, and here is your mother. To Mary, he seems to be saying that she will find in John the kind of son he himself had been unable to be, one who would care for her and who she could safely love without a fear of having her own heart pierced. And so, John notes, from that hour, the disciple took Mary into his home. The other is Jesus' dying statement, which is not the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, recorded by Mark and by Matthew, or not even the, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, which Luke records Jesus as uttering with a loud cry, but rather, it is finished. It is finished. Or as it's sometimes rendered, it is accomplished. What he has lived for is accomplished in his dying. The victory is already won. And as John understands it, Jesus knows it with great clarity which is truth, of course. In his death, the needful work was done, and though he descended to the dead, as the Apostles' Creed phrases it, though his broken, dead body lay in the tomb until the third day, the power of death has been effectively broken already in his act of dying. Yet I wonder, did Jesus know this with such clarity at that moment? Is that even possible? For John, writing many years later and offering his impressionistic memory of all that happened that day, the answer is categorically yes, Jesus knew. Yet, I have to confess, I've often struggled with that portrait. Early in my ordained ministry, I spent six years working as the chaplain at Marymount a treatment center for adolescent girls operated by the Roman Catholic Sisters of the Good Shepherd. Among other things, I was tasked there with the challenge of trying to make the gospel live for a group of pretty messed up kids, most of whom, at best, had just a passing acquaintance with the Christian story. So we had a regular Sunday afternoon chapel service, and I tried to find creative ways to observe some of the most important days in the church calendar. Given all of its cultural currency, Christmas was easy, of course. We could do that. Easter, Easter was manageable, though how to speak of the resurrection without first addressing the death of Jesus I landed on a format that was based on telling the story by walking the stations of the cross, much as some of us did here in this building this past Wednesday. Marymount has a lovely carved wooden set of the stations, which are hung on the walls around the back half of the chapel. And so I'd invite any of the girls and the staff who wanted to take part to join with a small group, and we'd walk through the story of the Passion. There were about 30 girls living in residence, though being a long weekend, there were probably only about 20 in the building on Good Friday. 
of those 20, 12, maybe 14, would be interested. So I'd break them into three smaller groups and space them out over the course of the afternoon. It would take us no more than 12, maybe 15 minutes to walk through the story. And then we'd head into my office, which was located in the corner of the chapel, for hot cross buns and a conversation. Mostly a conversation not about Good Friday, because they typically had other things they were much more interested in talking about. Still, it was a good practice, and I was always pleased to know how at home those kids were in just sitting around in my office and talking. Now, as most of you will know, the stations work through the story of the crucifixion in 14 steps or stages. At the end are the stations where Jesus dies on the cross, is then taken down, and finally buried. Up on the wall in the same part of the chapel where we considered those final three stations, was a large crucifix in that chapel, almost life-size, in fact. The Christ figure was probably five feet tall, and as is typical of Catholic church art of a certain period, the Jesus was made to look as real as possible. His hand, feet, and side were marked with blood wounds, His head was circled with a cruel-looking crown of thorns. His face was gaunt, clearly dead or dying. One girl's reaction to that large crucifix changed me, or at least it changed forever how I could read the gospel according to John. It wasn't the first Good Friday that I was there and doing it with those kids, It was maybe the second or third year. Each time I'd taken these little groups of girls through the stations, I'd leaned toward my own preference for the passion story according to Mark. I was sure that when we came to those final stations marking the death and burial of Jesus, standing right there beside that life-size crucifix, remember, I was sure that if I could stress how even Jesus, even Jesus, had felt lost and abandoned at his death, it would make some sense to them the same way it made sense to me. If Jesus could experience that sense of being abandoned, that that place of not knowing, of doubt, I reasoned that these girls would feel a connection to him. Even Jesus. And then this one particularly angry and fiery girl. A girl who had begun to trust me, and God only knows why, because she had been so hurt by most of the men in her life. She had no reason to trust anyone. That girl stepped back, looked at that crucifix, and she said, I could never believe in a God who would do that to his own kid. At first, I thought she was either just kidding or trying to be difficult. 
But no, she was serious, really serious. She looked at me with this almost unbelievable intensity and she said, I can't, Jamie, I'm sorry, I just can't. I was stunned. I mean, I knew the subtext to her statement because I knew that her own father had hurt her terribly and that she harbored a deep resentment toward her mother for not having kept her safe. I'm sure I tried to mumble something in reply to her fire, her anger, her, her intensity, but clearly that session of walking the Stations of the Cross was finished. We all adjourned to my office, including that girl, for our obligatory snack and visit. Predictably, the conversation turned to other things, but my head was just swimming. After a little while, they all headed off, and I had to think about what this young woman had said to me, what she'd alerted me to. And then I had to think about the next group I'd be bringing into the chapel for their session of walking the story. And it was then, that moment right there and then, that I began to become more profoundly aware of what John knew about Jesus. From the very opening of his gospel, John is unflinching in his proclamation of the truth of the Incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John writes. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this Jesus of Nazareth, God became one of us, one with us. As the theologian and jazz musician William Edgar said to me, the Incarnation is God's great improvisational act. The perfect resolution of the tension between, on the one hand, God's deep love for humanity, and on the other, the reality of humanity's deep alienation and brokenness. How to reconcile that love and our brokenness, our alienation, and bring us home? By entering into the midst of us and making a home with us, God with us. In Eugene Peterson's free translation, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's the incarnation. And that's the point on which John is most clear. When John looks at Jesus, he sees God with us. Everything he remembers, every story that has been passed on to him, are held in that light. He sees Jesus on the cross, and for him it is so clearly God crucified. John sees not a transaction by which the Father, God the Father, calls the Son to die, but instead he sees a self-sacrificial act of God with us. Now, I was raised by good people. I never once in my life imagined my father would do anything to hurt me, nor that my mother would fail to do everything she could to keep me safe. I have the luxury, in other words, of reading all four Gospels. I can read Mark, and I can be drawn by a Jesus who struggles and who at the end experiences some sense of desolation or abandonment. For me, it makes Jesus more real. 
I can read John's account, and I can let my eyebrow raise a little bit at the points in which Jesus seems beyond so basic a struggle. Those moments when he prays, not because he has to, but because it's a teaching moment. I have the luxury to kind of go, well, maybe. I have the luxury of reading the narratives like that, just a little dispassionately. Not so for that young woman at Marymount. I could never believe in a God who would do that to his own kid. I can't, Jamie. I'm sorry, I can't. Her response was so urgent and so very, very real. And sometimes, I have to admit, my engagement with these narratives can be so domesticated, safe, arm's length. I've just never been hurt the way that she had. Well, it wasn't long before I was due to get that next group of girls to come and walk the passion story with me. But this time, and every time and every year while I still worked there, when we came to the crucifixion and death stations, I let John be my guide. Christians believe God loves us so much that he became a human being, and he was even willing to die like that for us. And we believe that somehow it changed everything, I would tell them. And it did. Because as John knows so clearly, that day it was finished, accomplished, and done. I wish I could tell you that when that young woman heard the passion story told through the lenses John gave to me, Everything changed for her. I wish I could tell you that, but it didn't. In fact, her life continued to spiral downward, and she didn't even live to see her 20th birthday. Sadly, that young woman's death was at least as tragic as the rest of her short life. Yet her question changed me, because it pressed on my assumptions and it deepened me both theologically and spiritually. And if in the death of Jesus it is indeed finished, maybe in the death of that fiery, angry, broken, and oh-so-vulnerable young woman, she has been met by the God she can finally trust. And Jesus said, It is finished. And then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit, and nothing has ever been the same since. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.